0: We're going to launch from God and government to something very close to that in terms of our individual responsibilities, and I'm calling it Christian ownership, and that's in the Matthew folder. Christian ownership, and as we get started on this discussion, I want you to look at my little picture I put back there. I wonder what this guy's job is. So I don't see a backpack. I see a cliff, and I see uh, an elevation but he doesn't look like he has a parachute, so I don't think he's like a a wingsuit skydiver or something. I mean, he might be, but he's not in this picture. What do you think his job is? Some of you are obviously going to focus in on that border collie or whatever that little dog is and say, that guy is a dog trainer. (laughs) And you'd be right. His parents probably have a sticker on their car that says doggy grandparent or something, you know? Because we've lost our minds. I suspect this guy actually uh, doesn't have that kind of luxury. Did, what do you think his job was there, Benjamin? A shepherd. Yeah, he's a shepherd. That's exactly what he is. He's a shepherd. And I, I love this picture uh, because you can see a vast landscape and a very small responsibility. He's got a vast world around him, and yet he's just a lowly guy out there, hands in his pockets, got his little knit cap on, watching his little small, however small it is, flock of sheep. And we can so easily lose sight of the privilege of what's been entrusted to us because we get distracted by the wide world. We get ambitious, we get worried about things that really are none of our business, none of our problem. And we don't focus on the shepherding, the flock that's been entrusted to us. And that's really what I'm calling Christian ownership. Thinking about the concept of God as the giver, ourselves as the receivers, and what that relationship means. I've taken my name for this whole series from the popular discussion and leadership literature of of giving people ownership. Just show of hands: Has anyone ever heard of a talk on leadership where they, they they call it delegating? They call delegating responsibility, giving someone ownership of something. Have you have you heard this before? I'm seeing some nodding of of the heads. One of you raise your hand. Thank you. Two of you, I, I see three, three 50, four, 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 two. There's a famous book that has uh, taken this topic and made it a bestseller by a very well-respected leadership guru um, and Navy SEAL retired officer named Jocko Willink, extreme ownership, he calls it. And I, I don't know where he is on his Christian life. I don't know if the, the man's a believer, I've listened to quite a bit of his discussions and his podcasts and stuff, and I think he has a lot of really awesome, helpful things to say about military affairs and all things martial, military. I, I think he's a great uh, American um, patriot, and um, as far as I know. I, 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 but I can't endorse everything he says. I don't know everything. But the point is that um, he, he's a bestseller because he's telling people to do their jobs. He's telling people to make their bed. It's one of those make your bed kind of books. Um, Navy SEALs, Navy officers are good at telling people to make their bed. We appreciate that. Um, It's really good advice, and it has to do with your mindset. It has to do with your sense of of responsibility and take care of what's been entrusted to you. Stewardship, ownership. And you could call this little series on, on ownership, you could call it Stewardship. But if you say stewardship in evangelical circles where people have heard a lot of sermons, you have a couple of different genres of sermons out there. There They're MODs. You know what an MOD is? That's a message on discipleship, where we remember that we're supposed to live our lives for Christ and not for ourselves because we're His, we're not our own. And so what does that look like? And what does Jesus say in counting the cost of being a disciple? A MOD, message on discipleship. Well, every message from this pulpit is a message on discipleship. But then there's an MOS, which is a message on stewardship. Does anybody know what a message on stewardship is? Do you know what the topic is? You're like, stewardship, pastor. It's message on stewardship. But that's just a euphemism. What is a message on stewardship about? What would you say? The treasurer of the board of deacons said it's giving. It's a message on giving. Because that's what the euphemism in evangelical talk is, is we're going to now talk about how we all need to give money to the church. And I just want to say that if that's what your mind goes to when we talk about stewardship, or delegated responsibility, or ownership of what's been entrusted to you, if your mind immediately goes to a guilt feeling that am I giving enough to the church, then you haven't understood this really important topic because every message from this pulpit is a message on stewardship. Every message is a message on the grace of God. Every message is a message about the Christian spiritual life Walking by the Spirit, and so not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Every message is in view of the coming of Jesus with a judgment for you and me, for believers in Christ. A special judgment called the BAME or a judgment seat of Christ. If you think... That stewardship is giving to the church, then you haven't really understood the topic, which is not surprising for evangelical dumb, but it would be surprising for me and you if you. And so I've taught you a little bit of technical vocabulary out there in the broad world, but come back in here to the Shire, here in our little hobbit hole, and we'll talk about what the Bible says about the topic of stewardship. I'm going to start off by saying stewardship is not giving to the church, okay, because that narrows down your entire life to money, and that's not, that's not what it means to be a steward of what God has entrusted to you, but I would say giving to the church is stewardship, so there's a big category, and then there's small subcategories within that. Stewardship means... That you're given a special delegated responsibility by a higher authority. That's what it means. Now, the reason it's useful when we talk about Christian giving, and this is not our topic, but the reason it's useful to discuss stewardship on the topic of Christian giving is because you don't want to think of it as uh, money. Because then you're going to start trying to serve two masters. You want to think of yourself as God's. And what God has entrusted to you includes money. And there's a responsibility with that. But think of it this way. You've been delegated with various responsibilities. And what's going to happen to us in this study, if if God's word has its way, is that we're going to snap very quickly from feeling sorry for ourselves about the responsibilities that have been placed on us And it's so easy to do it. The thorn in the flesh that God gave Paul is a stewardship. It's a load he has to carry. And by God's grace, he can, but not by himself. We're going to take that immediate sinful fleshly reaction of self-pity when we encounter hardship, when we encounter any load of responsibility. Oh, do I have to do this? And we're going to flip our entire attitude back to God And the privilege he's given us to suffer for his sake if necessary. We're going to start seeing our entire life as a delegated blessing from God to serve him in every choice. This is Christian discipleship. This is Christian spiritual life. This is the walk by the Spirit. When I say someone is given a special delegated responsibility... Now let's specify Christian ownership, Christian stewardship. When it's been delegated from someone special, someone specific, there's a special giver in this case. There's someone, not a boss that gave you his car, okay, for you to maintain it because he trusts you and you've been given a, a heavy responsibility. Now it's, it's the company car and you're driving the boss's car. Not something like that. Not the boss who owns multiple Outlets, multiple places of great financial wealth and he gives you the keys to one of them and says, manage this. Not something so paltry as kindling that a human being can give to another human being. It's all gonna burn. I'm talking about somebody special who's given you something of infinite value. God has given everything to us. So everything we have are, everything we know this is all part of this delegation. It's all part of the stewardship that God has given us. And that, that approaches the idea of biblical ownership. So we are his stewards because he's the giver. So let's ask a question. What are you called to steward? What's been entrusted to you? Think about the various things. I went theological heavy on, on the front end here. And so in your mind, hopefully you're thinking of things like, well, I have the Holy Spirit's ministry of edifying and equipping for work. I've been given a spiritual gift. We're going to those things. But let's go, before we say I've been delegated the spiritual things that God tells me in his word that I can't see and touch, let's talk about the tangibles. What have you been called to steward? Do you have any parents in the room? Of course. You've been called to steward people. See my little picture of little kids? Can you identify with the photo I just put up on the screen, little guys? Yes, you can. That's a little boy and a little girl. And is that a nuclear explosion behind? No, no, that's the sun. That's a fusion reaction behind the, the sun. Stuff. Obviously, we think of a house. I try to pick a house that would be cool. You have stuff, you have a house, and it's the stewardship. Has everybody got everything winterized? <laughs> well, you're late. <laughs> I'm learning things like chickens still need water in the wintertime. There's a way to do that. Probably different than how I'm doing it, but they're getting water. <laughs> People, things, your job, Hey, I've got to be there. I'm expected, I'm needed at the workplace. They, they want me to do my job, and it's been entrusted to me, and I'm supposed to do it. These things are a varying intensity, but I want you to focus on that first one, people. You know, all the Bibles are going to burn. I'm sorry. It's hard to think of that because we know the Bible is God's holy word, and so we think of the physical printed page as having that holy significance that should only be exalted and honored. We see our Bible uh, haphazardly placed by a child randomly allowing gravity to take its course. We find one of the pages creased. And we're not super religious fervor about that, but it does bother us, you know what I mean? The Bible, it's fine, you can still read it, but it's got a crease. That's never happened to me, but anyway... um, They're all going to burn, but God's word is never going to pass away. See all the physical things in the world. Read Second Peter three. They're going to burn with intense heat. All the physical, and then we're going to wonder: Did we listen closely to Peter and James and John and Paul and the Old Testament prophets, Moses? Did we get the spiritual, immaterial things that can never pass away? Did we get them in our hearts? Did did we do what we could with the physical world we're in, while we had a chance to get hold of the spiritual? But see, those people in your life, they're the only thing you can physically touch that's gonna to go on forever. I want you to th- think about that thought for a second. Let this sink in just a bit. The biblical worldview on human beings is that whether in Christ or separated from God, dead in their trespasses and sins, every human being will be resurrected. That means brought back to life in their physical body, made new. This body. Oh, that's impossible. Okay, you need to deal with existence of anything if you want to talk about what's impossible. We know the sun doesn't rise. The earth is rotating. Okay, but, I, but I'm still speaking in terms of miracles. Why does that happen? Why is the earth rotating? Why is it at an axis so that we can have seasons and therefore crops and harvest? Why, why any of it? Because God does that. What I'm saying is that the people in your life are going to go on forever here in, in this physical body, either in the new heavens and new earth in a resurrection body to glory, to inherit all things with Christ, or separated from God in eternal separation and damnation with an eternal fire whose worm never gets full and the fire never, never dies out. And that's, that's the, the reality of people. And it's very weird. And we live in a world and we, and we want to be materialists. We want to say everything is, is what I see and touch. But actually, from the biblical perspective... The people that you're engaging with, the people that you know, the people that you're talking to, they are going to be existing physically in perpetuity. It's on the other side of the grave. I understand we, we go in the ground, our body goes in the ground, our spirit separated from our body, our, our body disintegrates. The writers of scripture knew this. They knew that eventually the body disintegrates sufficiently, that we just have bones. You put the bones in a box in Jesus' day in the first century. In Jerusalem, in Israel, that was a bone box called an ossuary, and the graveyard was a place to file the bones in a little bone box. They knew. And they said, and yet, I will be resurrected. In the twinkling of an eye, the apostle Paul knew that we would all be changed because we have to have an incorruptible, eternal body that will inherit eternity. You have to, or you can't have the inheritance that's marked out for you. It's an implication of the promises beginning in Genesis of inheritance. To have all things in Christ and have them forever, you have to live forever. So, resurrection body is a thing, and that is a really important part of your biblical anthropology. And that means that the people that you know and touch go on forever, and that means that they're unique on earth. The Bible says nothing about the resurrection or perpetuity of the animals. It doesn't say. It doesn't talk about that. That's so why I kind of I scoff a little bit about uh, doggy grandparents. I once had someone tell me that um, that animal abuse is equivalent morally to child abuse to human beings. And we all know inherently, we know that's not right. We know it's horrible for humans to hurt animals. We know it's absolutely horrible and derelict of our duties. And when you think about the stewardship God gave man over the animals, that that heightens the biblical worldview, heightens our care for animals. But it doesn't put animals on par with humans. We know there's a difference. And so what I'm trying to say is stewardship with human beings, it's everything. You need stuff to do it. For you to take care of one another in this time in which we live, you need asphalt on the roads and you need cars that can get there so that you can take care of one another, so you can care for one another. This is stuff, physical stuff. It's a means to an end. Who likes cars here? Everybody likes cars. Can you imagine the alternative? Want to do a buckboard, a couple of horses? I don't. I mean... It'd be fun. Once. I think it'd be pretty neat to see the horses out in the parking lot. Now the deacons have new responsibilities, new stewardship responsibilities. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. <laughs> We all love cars, but they're just a means to an end. It's just a thing. It's so easy to get hung up on things. And I'm kind of poaching from what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. The stuff is a means to an end. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's people. That's what God's going to do with humans. And the mission God gave us. He didn't tell you to, uh, to like the shakers did. They, they said, well, God is perfect and good and righteous, he, he's a good creator. And so to bear his image, we should be good creators and be fine artisans and craftsmen. And so their cultural thing was to make beautiful craftsmanship, which is great. It's a, it's a thing to do, just like taking care of animals. But that is not the same as care for the souls of men and women, it's not. And uh, actually turns out they were really confused about some really important biblical doctrines like marriage. And they forbid, they forbade, sorry, they forbade uh, marriage and giving in marriage. And we know to read Paul that that's a big no-no. That's a cult. That's a that's that's a heresy. And the Shakers died out because they didn't marry. And this is what happens: is if you don't marry and have children, then that movement goes away. Think about it. And that's that's the Shakers. But boy, do they have some pretty furniture. Lovely architecture. I love the beautiful, perfectly gilded or perfectly carved and designed winding staircase. But see, this is details of life. We get hung up on the means to the end instead of the end. It's just a little illustration from the shakers. Probably for Lou's benefit because Lou makes, was it 18th century furniture? And uh, probably has made shaker furniture before. No? Yes? Yeah. Okay. Got it. So this message is for Lou. (laughs) Now, people are the thing. People are the thing. And if I say people, then I'm talking relationships. And if I'm talking relationships and people, then there's a hierarchy there too. Who's the most important person for you to take care of in your life? Who's the most important person for you to to deal with that relationship? What relationship between you and what person takes the center stage in all your relationships and whatever else happens, you're hanging on to that person and you're Concern for that person's welfare, that person's best, that person's preferences, that person's needs, that person's desires. Who is the person in your life that dominates your stewardship responsibilities? Hey, Christians, surprise, we're not going to be the church of Ephesus and lose our first love. We're not going to be doctrinally sound and relationally bankrupt with God. We're going to say God is our first love, and that relationship has to become the priority. That's That's stewardship of personal relationships. So why don't we look at that in the Bible? You're like, Dave, that's a long introduction. It is. So I'd ask you to turn to a place that demonstrates the balance of stewardship of personal relationships in in that place that, that we always think of when we think of stewarding personal relationships between God and man. Where would that be? Exodus chapter 20. Please turn with me to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And it's very easy to remember Exodus 20 has the 10 because 10 times 2 is 20. And the second book of the Bible is Exodus. So Exodus 20 has the 10 commandments. The famous 10 words of God that he gave to the nation. If you look actually in verse 19, let's do the little bit of the story now, how, how would you find Exodus? Well, your first hour advanced karate students, you know that it's right there in the beginning, second book of the Bible. Okay, so Exodus chapter 20, and uh, I'll back up just a little bit to get a little perspective on what is, this is a story of God speaking to the nation. It's a story, it's a narrative that Moses narrates. He writes, having experienced it. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it. This is Exodus 19, 18. The Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. Does everybody have a, an image of an erupting volcano? Just prior to the lava blowing up, it's that, it's that plume of smoke, and, but there is fire visible. Now, the rabbis call this the Shekinah glory and they were right to do it. Shekinah is from Shekinah to, resi- to reside or to settle. So the idea is that God, when He would be present, He would settle, and His glory would be visible either in a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire, cloud of smoke or pillar of fire. And this vision, this image of God, was visible to the nation of Israel at the tabernacle, and as God led them. Uh, from the from the from Egypt, and then when he was present with them in their nation, they could look out at the tabernacle and see a cloud of smoke a fire, a cloud of, a cloud of smoke or a pillar of fire as the presence of God's glory. And so you have that here, but it's it's violent glory, it's fierce glory, it's it's dangerous, dangerous glory, and what we have, if we let this sink in, we'll develop what's called very wisely the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is on display. In verse 19, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai in the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down. The Lord said, get up here. And then when he got up there, he said, yes, Lord. He said, go down there. Go down, warn the people so they do not break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. He's giving them a spectacle and their natural response will be to gawk. But they can gawk at a distance. Boy, I wish I could have seen this. This kind of story, this kind of history, this happened in time and space that we're living in. We're breathing the same you know, air and coughing on the same dust and the same planet that this all took place Uh, 3,500 years ago, and we will see the Lord, but um, don't let them come forward to me. Don't let them break forth. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Don't let them break up toward me because they're unholy. They're they're, they're not holy with me. They've got their sandals on. They've got dirty feet. I don't want them around me, and when the priests come, they better be consecrated. They better not be dirty themselves, or I'll break forth and that's the language. It's, it's a play on words against them. Also, <clears throat> Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying, set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. So God had given Moses instructions and Moses was a faithful steward of God's word usually. And having received that instruction from God, he then parlayed it to the people that were subordinate to him. And he gave these instructions in the people as far as he knew, fulfilled it. So he said, you've already given me this deposit of revelation that they can't come up and so we put a fence or we've, we've made boundaries and they won't be able to. Then the Lord said, this is a, this is a, this is a boss with his subordinate kind of conversation. He's in the boss's office. And I have something, I have explicit instructions, and you need to follow them, is what God's saying. And it's very clear that this is really tight. I I want this done just exactly as I say. The Lord said to him, go down and come up again. You and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So God is really double underlining, I don't want to have to kill everybody, but I will. I don't want there to have to be a bloodbath at this because I'm about to give you a blessing. I'm about to give you my revelation of what I expect from you. That's what's happening. But he has to have it set up so that he can do it. And it has to be his way. And that's called protocol. God has preferences and he's personal. And you better figure out what his preferences are. That's what this is. And this is right in line with the holiness of God. Be holy for I'm holy. They're not righteous like he is. There has to be the separation. And that's what holiness is. It's separation. And this paints the picture very clearly for us that we need a savior because we're not good enough in ourselves without Christ saving us from our sins. And self-righteousness may be, it may be the weight that is weighing you down to the lake of fire that you think you're good yourself. The entire nation Had had all kinds of people. They They had butchers, bakers, candlestick makers. They had gossips. They had drunks. They had little children. They had children of drunks. They had all kinds of people. They had people that never would have ever given in to being drunk, and they derided those who would. They had fornicators, and they had those who had never committed fornication. They had all kinds of people. They had the Romans 2 people and the Romans 3 people and the Romans 1 people, by the way. But God said, don't let any of them come up to me because I will have to separate. I will have to to demonstrate the holiness of God in a violent way now we're supposed to say oh oh if it's like that I better be careful this is dangerous dealing with the living God that's exactly the conclusion to draw from the text in arrogance what man will say is what God's mean well I don't want to deal with such a God if he has to have it just his way And if you decide in foolish arrogance, and I can't bring conviction about this, but God can. If you decide that you don't want to have anything to do with such a God, listen, you can have your way. If you say no to God's love and the cross of Christ, you will have nothing to do with this God. And it's called the lake of fire. But don't let self-righteousness, that I'm a good person, weigh you down to the lake of fire because it will. Repent. Repent of that arrogance to say that you are good in yourself and receive only by faith in Jesus Christ the work that he accomplished. And that is presented very clearly that the entire nation, despite, unclean, despite their consecration, despite their set-apartness to God, they're not clean. They've already put the blood on the doorpost. They've already been brought out of Egypt. They're unclean. Do not let them come forward. And the priests, they better do it just right too. Those that are set apart to him. And then God spoke all these words saying. Now, that's the context for the great Ten Commandments. People don't think about it. People think, well, I I do the Ten Commandments. I've never murdered anybody. Good. No adultery? Right. Good. The context is the perfect righteous holiness of God. And so when he gives them these words, they're horrified. The noise is deafening. It's very fearful for them. The Lord God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. What he just did was establish who he is. He's not the other gods that people pray to. He's the one that saved you out of Egypt, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I'm that one. And it's personal. And it's really important to guard that word personal it means belonging to a person, not an it, not a force, not an idea. But the the, the personal God who calls himself your father, your creator, the one who has preferences and desires and wants the best and highest and greatest for you, he says, I'm that one. And then he gives them instructions, which are a great blessing to them, to us, to any who can take these words, have no other gods before me. You will have no other gods before me. He won't brook any syncretism. You can't say, here's Yahweh, here's Molech, here's Chemosh, here's... Uh, all and, and we just have a charm bracelet. What's that uh, charm bracelet they do now, or they used to do? What's that thing? I forget that. They redid the charm bracelet for a while, and everybody bought them. They're overpriced. Anyway, so, so you can't add Jesus as a trinket on your charm bracelet. You can't do that. If you had an overpriced charm bracelet, I don't mean you. I mean the other ones, um, but, but you can't add Jesus in as another bead on your necklace, there can't be God plus, it's got to be God only, and he doesn't allow any other contenders. And this is the horrible thing as a shepherd to me, is that people from our own ranks in Acts 20 have arisen to present Yahweh as someone that he's not. One lady founding a religion of, 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 of misguided future prophecy said four times in her writings that God, that Jesus is the archangel Michael. But he's not at all in any way the archangel Michael. But he is in the Old Testament appear as the angel of the Lord at times. But he's not Michael. He's God the Son, the eternally pre-existing Son of God. And so, so the, the wolves, the savage wolves arise all from all over the place and even from our own ranks. You get these false teachers, but it's got to be the only God. You shall not make your for yourselves an idol or any likeness what is in heaven of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth you shall not worship them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me he is really tough here in his language but listen to it the generational corruption of rebellion against God is going to be addressed by him before he shuts it down and then he says, but, but I show loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, thousands of generations. This is, it's gonna be his way. Get it straight. Humble yourself before him. It's God and his way or nothing. And that's the nature of the relationship that he specifies with national Israel in this covenant giving of covenant responsibilities in their bilateral arrangement at Mount Sinai. The Mosaic Covenant has these stipulations, has these expectations, and I want you to see in the first four statements, the first four commandments, they're your personal relationship with me, national Israel. You are stewards of the you and me-ness as far as it depends on you. You're a steward of this. It's been delegated to you that you worship no one else. You, you, be, you be consistent and don't spiritually adulterize and worship someone or something else, just me. You don't make any idols like the nations around you because that leads you to worship something or someone else besides me. And you can't make a representation of me. You gotta worship me as I am, not as a representation. And that's a big problem. People do representations. You can't do a representation of God because people will start thinking of the representation as God. And you have to think of him as himself and that's spiritual and that's hard. Imagine what God looks like Here he gave you a representation, his covering glory, cloud of smoke, pillar of fire. We know he's with us because we see this representation that he made, but they weren't even supposed to make an engraving of that. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In verse 7, you shall not take the name of the, your, the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes my name in vain. And everybody in our culture knows what the Bible doesn't mean when it says, take his name in vain. It means to say God in front of a bad word. Or to just say God. That's what it means to take his name in vain. And these are vain uses of the name of God, but I think there's something much deeper obviously, than saying swear words as God's name. He doesn't say, use the name in vain. He doesn't say, say it in a, in a vain speech. He says, take it in vain. And let's look, at, let's look at context. Taking his name. It's a stewardship. It's a delegation of identity. You're my people and I'm your God. You are taking my name on yourself. Don't do that casually i think that's a much bigger thing than whether you say bad words with god in front of it don't do that that's a demonstration that you're taking his name in vain understand and then of course the sabbath remember the sabbath day to keep it holy six days you shall labor and do all your work the one verse that's missed on the discussion of sabbath is exodus 20 verse 9 six days you shall labor and do all your work Sabbath law begins with six days of labor. Oh, but I don't really... Six days, you will labor and do your work. By the time you've worked for six solid days, by God's design, it is time for a break. And it's a break before the Lord. It's a break in your labor before God. That's what God gave Israel. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle, your sojourner, who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, seeing all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, it's very common for people of my ilk to say, to notice that in the New Testament, there is no restatement of Sabbath to the church. Today is not the Sabbath. In any way, Sabbath is the seventh, that'd be Saturday. This is the first. And the big difference is if you're, if you think the Sabbath is Sunday, then you, you've completely destroyed the calendar that God established because why we meet on Sunday is that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. We are by everything we're saying, it all hangs on the resurrection. The resurrection founds everything we, we understand from the old and new testaments. And Jesus is our Savior, and we are the new people uh, after the resurrection. That's what the Sunday worship is. And by the way, Sabbath was never a time for those that are Hebrew roots people that want to keep the law today, even though they can't, but they try. Um, the Sabbath observance crowd uh, that, uh, that, that legalistically say that they put you under the burden of the Mosaic law, that you have to keep the Sabbath. What I would say to them um, is that uh, uh, Sabbath um, is... A blessing, it is never was never meant as a curse. Sabbath is a rejoice before God celebration. It was a little feast every week before the Lord. That's what it was. We do Thanksgiving once a year, like they did a big Passover meal once a year, kind of like the big it's all about the meal. Shabbat, every Shabbat's a big supposed to be a celebration. And um, and it is the identity of national Israel. These national people are separate from all the other nations because they belong to the creator of all the people. And the creator of all the people took off on day seven. He rested day seven. So we belong to him. We are uniquely identified as the nation that belongs to him. And that's why people like me will say that the sign, the symbol for the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. This is why it's not restated in the New Testament. And is it okay for you to keep the Sabbath? Is it okay for you to keep the Sabbath? Of course, rest before God and celebrate his goodness. Is it binding in the New Testament under penalty of capital punishment like in the Old Testament? If you don't, it is not. So you you have to discern the dispensations. He gave this to them as a stewardship. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, those four are personal choices that individuals would make. You can't choose for your kid whether he's gonna carve an idol. You can take away all the knives. You can hide the sticks. You can keep the chisels and hammers locked up. Right? But you can't live your kid's life for him. If he chooses, if she chooses to, to worship idols, he's gonna, and that everybody makes his own choice before God. And that's the way these Ten Commandments work. They're individual responsibilities placed on the entire nation. But these four are individual choices people would make in worshiping God. They are becoming stewards of this personal relationship with God that he established at Mount Sinai. This personal relationship with God in this covenant arrangement. And they're stewards now of this revelation that God said, this is how you relate to me. Here are the four things that I want you to be very careful to do between me and you. And it's only between them. Ever have someone crowd into your spiritual life and start talking about you and your relationship with God? I don't mean parents and children. Be careful about this. There's a blessing for pe- helping people come back to the Lord, for sure. But it's very delicate. It's very personal. Very intimate truth about my walk with God or your walk with God. And you can't do it for someone else. You can only encourage them. You can pray for them. You can live it yourself. That's the first four commandments. But look at the very different nature of verse 12. Verse 12. Number five starts talking about how you treat other people. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's between you and two people. Every one of us has a father and a mother. Every one of us has a binding responsibility, according to God's word, this is echoed in Ephesians chapter six to honor them. Does it mean we like them? Does it mean we do what they say? Does it mean that we, we follow them in their error, that we, that we don't deal with the, the mistakes and horrors that they've perpetrated in, t- in some cases? No, you honor them because God used them to make you and you're honoring God. So how you treat these two people becomes something that you're doing in those relationships for god's sake and so what was four commandments for my personal relationship with god in israel is now in light of that relationship now how i treat other people so we say it's how you treat god the four things and then how you treat other people for god's sake and so it's still me and god but now you're involved mom and dad or all of us don't murder verse 13 you shall not murder well translated in the new american standard mistranslated in the king james mistranslated in the king james has to be mistranslated to generally say kill thou shalt not kill that means that the rest of the bible is contradicting itself as god sends them to kill no some people need killing but people that don't need killing who are killed that's called murder and that's what we're talking about here is the illicit taking of human life Genesis chapter 9. You should not commit adultery. That involves two people. That involves you. Excuse me. That involves at least three people. That involves you and the spouse of the married person that the adulterer is, is adultering with. There's three people there. Not just one. Not just two. Three. He doesn't say fornication. It is fornication that breaks a marriage that he's talking about. Sex that is not between two married people in this case that breaks a marriage. Shall not steal. Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Shall not covet your neighbor's house or any of that stuff. These are all relationship with with the other people kinds of commands. And they regulate the way everybody is gonna live his life with his volition before God. And that establishes the nation. Individual responsibility lived out corporately. Individuals making their choices before God to relate to Him, to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, and then for His sake to love their neighbor as themselves. And that's how Jesus summarizes the Mosaic Law. I just want to show you that wherever you go in the Bible, you are seeing a sacred deposit, a sacred delegation, a sacred stewardship given to the people when God reveals Himself. And we, Church-age believers walking by the Spirit against such things there's no law. We are enjoying that all Scriptures God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Now listen to the fear of the Lord as we close. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. This is often portrayed, we often think of this as God talking to Moses. But the people are there at the bowl at this amphitheater space at Mount Sinai and they're hearing this and they're seeing the manifestation of God's wrath. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we'll die. This is the fear of the Lord. This is the weight that his words had as he presented them. In that moment, they were fearful to transgress anything this one with all his power was saying. But that fear wore off as the revelation diminished. They didn't have more revelation or they didn't pay attention more to the revelation that God had given through Moses. So it kind of faded from their minds, out of sight, out of mind. Give us an idol to worship by Exodus 32. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself. So verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Then the Lord said Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I've spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me. He's back to the personal relationship stuff, back to the first and second commandment. And he, and he tells them what he wants. It's all about his protocol, the way he wants them to proceed. Don't you make an altar that looks like the pagans. You're different. You're set apart to me. How does this apply in your life? The righteousness of God is on display. His expectations are the best and highest and greatest you could ever imagine. When God gives you something that he wants you to do, it is a stewardship. It is a blessing from heaven that God is expecting great things from you. And it feels heavy to us. The rest of the story as we'll see is that the easy load, the easy burden, the light load that Jesus gives us of impossible tasks of loving as he loves is power is capable because we have power from God the Holy Spirit the greatest delegation our father in heaven we thank you for the thoughts that you've given us today to consider our relationships which begin most significantly with a relationship with you as you demonstrated historically with the children of israel mount sinai you have clear expectations of righteousness for how humans are to deal with you and therefore how we deal with one another for your sake father help us uh, take these words to heart these high expectations the stewardship of husbands and wives, of parents and children, the stewardships, of relationships that we have are all to be regulated by our obedience, our walk with you, our empowerment by your grace, by your spirit. Don't let us separate these things out. Help us understand these things together. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. amen.